Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we'll endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case, as many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always let me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show, this week we'll be talking about the Moorgate tube crash. The Moorgate tube crash occurred on the 28th of February 1975 at 8.46am on the London Underground's Northern City Line. 43 people died and 74 were injured after a train fell to stop at the line's southern terminus, Moorgate Station, and crashed into its end wall. It is considered the worst peacetime accident on the London Underground. No fault was found with the train, and the inquiry by the Department of the Environment concluded that the accident was caused by the actions of Leslie Newson, the 56-year-old driver at the time. The crash forced the first carriage into the roof of the tunnel at the front and back, but the middle remained on the track bed. The 16-metre-long, 52-foot coach was crushed to 6.1 metres 20 feet. The second carriage was contained at the front, and it collided with the first and the third road over the rear of the second. The brakes were not applied, and the dead man's handle was still depressed when the train crashed. The London Fire Brigade Ambulance Service and City of London Police attended the scene. It took 13 hours to remove the injured, many of whom had to be cut free from the wreckage. With no services running into the adjoining platform to produce a piston effect pushing air into the station, ventilation was poor and temperatures in the tunnel rose to over 49 degrees Celsius, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. It took a further four days to extract the last body, that of Newson, his cab, normally 91 centimetres, 3 feet deep, had been crushed to 15 centimetres, 6 inches. The post-mortem on Newson showed no medical reason to explain the crash. A cause has never been established, and theories include suicide, that he may have been distracted, or that he was affected by conditions such as, and I'm going to butcher this name, transient global amnesia or arkansas with mutism. The subsequent inquest established that Newson had also explicitly overshot platforms on the same route on two other occasions earlier in the week of the accident. Tests showed that Newson had a blood alcohol level of 80mg slash 100ml, the level at which can be prosecuted for drink driving, though the alcohol may have been produced by the natural decomposition process over four days at a high temperature. In the aftermath of the crash, London Underground introduced a safety system that automatically stops a train when travelling too fast. This became known informally as Moorgate Protection. Northern City Line services into Moorgate ended in October 1975, and British Rail services started in August 1976. After a long campaign by relatives of the dead, two memorials were unveiled near the station, one in July 2013 and one in February 2014. 
now we get into the background of this case. London Underground, also known as the Underground or the Tube, is a public rapid transit system serving London and some parts of the adjacent countries, counties of Buckinghamshire, Essex and Hertfordshire. The first line opened in 1863 and by 1975 the network contained 250 miles or 400 kilometres of route track. That year 3 million people used the service each day. The Tube was one of the safest methods of transport in Britain in 1975. Apart from suicide there were only 14 deaths on the underground between 1938 and 1975, 12 of which occurred in the 1953 Statford crash. Moorgate Station in the City of London was the terminus at the southern end of the Northern City Line, five stops, 2.6 miles, 4.2 kilometres from the northern end at Drayton Park. Moorgate is an interchange between the underground network and suburban overground services. The station contains 10 platforms, numbers 7 to 10 are deep level and numbers 9 to 10 are used for the Northern City Line service. At the end of Platform 9 in 1975 was a red warning light atop a post situated in front of a 61 centimetre high two-foot sand drag placed to stop overrunning trains. The drag was 11 metres 36 feet long of which 5.8 metres 19 foot was on the tracks in front of the platform and 5.2 metres 17 foot was inside an overrun tunnel that was 20.3 metres 67 feet long 4.4 metres 13 feet high and 4.9 metres 16 feet wide. The tunnel had been designed to accommodate larger mainline rolling stock and so was wider than the standard tube tunnel width of 3.5 meters 12 foot a buffer stop which had once been hydraulic but had not been functioning as such for some time prior to the crash was at the end of the tunnel in front of a solid wall the approach to moorgate from old street station the stop prior to the terminus was on a failing gradient of 1 and 150 for 196 meters or 642 feet before leveling out for 71 meters 233 feet to platform 9 a scissors crossover was located just prior to platforms 9 and 10 there was a speed limit of 40 miles per hour 64 kilometers an hour on the line and a limit of 15 miles per hour 24 kilometers an hour on entry into Moorgate station. From November of 1966, the Northern City Line ran 1938 rolling stock. Weekly checks were made on the stock's brakes, doors and compressors. All equipment on the train was examined on a six-week basis and the cars were lifted from their bodgies for a thorough examination once a year. Now we get into the crash that took place. On the 28th of February 1975, the first shift of the Northern City Line service was driven by Leslie Newson, 56, who had worked for London Transport since 1969 and had been driving on the Northern City Line for the previous three months. Newson was known by his colleagues as a careful and conscientious motorman driver. On the 28th of February, he carried a bottle of milk, sugar, his rule book, and a notebook in his work satchel. He also had £270 in his jacket to buy a second-hand car for his daughter after work. According to staff on duty, his behaviour appeared normal. Before his shift began, he had a cup of tea and shared his sugar with a colleague. He jokingly said to the colleague, quote, Go easy on it, I shall want another cup when I come off duty. End quote. The first return trips of the day between Drayton Park and Moorgate, which started at 6.40am, passed without incident. Robert Harris, the 18-year-old guard who had started working for London Underground in August of 1974, was late and joined the train when it returned to Moorgate at 6.53am. A driver waiting to go on duty took his place until his arrival. Newson and Harris made three further trips before the train undertook its final journey from Drayton Park at 8.38am, 30 seconds late. 
The train carried approximately 300 passengers. It was a Friday, and as it was the peak of rush hour, most of the travellers were commuters. As the exit from Platform 9 was next to the Overrun Tunnel, the first two carriages were more popular with commuters and more full than the remaining four. Although pupils from the nearby city of London School for Girls would normally have been on the service at that time, the pupils had a day's holiday as the school was in use for external examinations. The journalist Sally Holloway, in her history of the crash, observes that the number of casualties could have been higher if the girls had been attending school. After the train departed Old Street on its 56 second journey to Moorgate, Harris was bored and left his position at the guard's control panel which contained the controls for the emergency brake at the front of the rear carriage and walked to the back of the train to look for a newspaper. He did not find one and spent his time reading the advertisements on the walls at the rear of the carriage. On arrival at Moorgate at 8.46am, the train, which comprised two units of three connected cars, did not slow. It was still under power and no brakes were applied. It passed through the station at 30 to 40 miles per hour, 48 to 64 kilometers per hour. The signalman on duty later reported that the train appeared to be accelerating as it passed along the platform. A passenger waiting to take the return journey stated that newsmen appeared to be steering straight ahead and to be somewhat larger than life. End quote. Tests were later done on trains entering Platform 9 at slow speed. These showed that because of the station lighting, it was impossible to clearly see the driver's eyes. Witnesses standing on the platform saw Newsom sitting upright and facing forward, his uniform neat and still wearing his hat. His hands appeared to be on the train's controls, as far as they could tell. The brakes were not applied and the dead man's handle was still depressed when the train entered the overrun tunnel, throwing up sand from the drag when the driver's cab crashed into the hydraulic buffer. The carriage was separated from its boggy and the coachwork was forced into the end wall on the roof. The first 15 seats of the carriage were crushed into 0.61 metres or 2 feet. The second coach was forced under the rear of the first which buckled at 3 points into the shape of a V with a tail and had its rear forced into the tunnel roof. With the weight of the train piling up behind it, the 16 metre long 50 foot two front coach was crushed to 6.1 meters or 20 feet. The third car was damaged at both ends, more significantly at the leading end as it rode over the second. Javier Gonzalez, a passenger who was traveling in the front carriage, described the moment the train crashed. Quote, Just above my newspaper, I saw a lady sitting opposite me and then the lights went out. I have the image of her face to this day. She died. As darkness came, there was a very loud noise of the crash, metal and glass breaking. No screams, all in the fraction of a second, and one takes to breathe in. It was all over in no time. End quote. 42 passengers and the driver died, 74 people were treated in hospital for other injuries. It was, and remains, the worst peacetime accident on the underground. Now we get into the rescue of the injured passengers. The first call to the emergency services was received at 8.48am, the London Ambulance Service arrived at 8.54am and the London Fire Brigade at 8.57am. At around the same time, the City of London Police alerted nearby St. Bartholomew's Hospital, Bart, that a tube train had hit the buffers at Moorgate, but there was no indication at that stage of the seriousness of the crash. A small assessment team comprising a casualty officer and a medical student was sent from the hospital. Fifteen minutes later, a resuscitation unit was sent, although the hospital staff was still unaware of the scale of the problem. The City of London Police also contacted the medical unit of BP at Britannic House, Finsbury Circus. Dr. Donald Dean and two teams of doctors and two nurses walked around the station to assist and were the first medical assistants at the scene. After assessing the situation, Dean realised that he did not have enough painkillers with him or in BP stores, so he went to the Moorgate branch of Boots, where the pharmacist gave him the shop's entire supply of morphine and pethidine. The fire brigade undertook a brief inspection of the site and once they saw what they were dealing with, the status was updated to a 
a major accident event. Additional ambulances and fire tenders were soon sent. One of the doctors from Bart later described the scene. Quote, the front carriage was an indescribable tangle of twisted metal, and in it the living and the dead were heaped together, intertwined among themselves in the wreckage. It was impossible to estimate the number of casualties involved with any degree of accuracy because the lighting was so poor. The victims were all tangled together, and everything was covered with a thick layer of black dust. Many of the victims were writhing in agony and were screaming for individual attention. It was obvious from an early stage that the main problem was the disentanglement of a heap of people, many of whom appeared to be in imminent danger of suffocation, end quote. By around 9am, the last casualty had been removed from the third carriage, and by 9.30am, Moorgate and many of the surrounding roads had been cordoned off to allow space for the coordination teams above ground to manage the flow of vehicles, particularly for ambulances taking casualties to hospitals. A message was sent from the London Fire Brigade headquarters to all fire stations in London. It estimated there were still 50 people trapped and warned that this incident will be protracted. To make a clear passage through the wreckage for equipment, the emergency services and injured commuters, a circular route was organized through the carriages. Firemen cut holes in parts of the structure, including in the floors and ceilings of the carriages, through which it was possible to move, even if it meant crawling through some areas. At 10 a.m., a medical team arrived from the London Hospital and set up a makeshaft operating theater on a platform near the triage team. Platform 9 was 21 meters or 70 foot underground, and fire and ambulance crews had to carry all the equipment that they needed through the station and down to the scene of the accident. The depth at which they were operating and the shielding effect of the soil and concrete meant their radios could not get through to the surface. Messages and requests for further supplies were passed by runners, which led to mistakes. One doctor requested further supplies of the pain-killing gas Entonox, but by the time the request reached the surface, it had been garbled to, the doctor wants an empty box. The fire brigade deployed a small team with Figaro, an experimental radio system that worked in deep locations. Working conditions for the emergency services became increasingly difficult throughout the day. The crash had thrown soot and dirt into the air from the sand drag and from between the two middle layers of the tube carriages. Everything was covered with a thick layer of the residue which was easily disturbed. The lamps and cutting gear used by the fire brigade raised the temperature to over 49 degrees Celsius or 120 degrees Fahrenheit and oxygen levels began to drop. In the deep lines at Moorgate, ventilation is reduced by the piston effect created by trains forcing air through the tube lines. With services stopped since the crash, no fresh air was reaching platforms 9 and 10. A large electric fan was placed at the top of the escalators in an attempt to remedy the situation, but soot and dirt was disturbed and little drought was created. The machine was soon turned off. By 12 noon, only five live casualties were left to be extracted. By 3.15 p.m., only two were left. Margaret Lillies, a 19-year-old woman police constable WPC, and Jeff Benton, who worked at the London Stock Exchange. They were in the front part of the first carriage at the time of the crash and ended up trapped together, pinned down under the girders of the carriage's structure. The fire brigade worked for several hours to release Benton, but it became apparent that Lily's needed to be removed first, which could only be done by amputating her left foot. She was finally removed from the wreckage after the procedure at 8.55pm. Benton was removed at 10pm. As soon as Benton had been removed, all equipment was turned off and silence was ordered among the emergency services. Shouts were made for any people trapped to respond. There was no responses and the site medical officer declared that all remaining bodies in the carriage wreckage were dead. During the day, mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation had been needed to save two people and two victims died of crush syndrome soon after being released from the wreckage. Benton also died of crush syndrome in hospital on the 27th of March 1975, despite initially good progress. Now we get into the aftermath of this accident. 
First we have the clearing up. Work on removing the bodies and clearing the wreckage from the tunnel began after the last casualty had been removed. With no casualties remaining, the fire brigade were able to use the flame-cutting equipment. After the third carriage was cut free from the second at 1am on the 1st of March, the third carriage began to be winched back down the track. As it began moving, a body that no one had seen fell from the wreckage and onto the track. According to Joseph Milner, the chief fire officer of the London Fire Brigade, the body gave the first indication of how protracted would be the work ahead. Once the carriage had been removed, a doctor again checked for further signs of living casualties. None were found. The use of the flame cutting equipment had a detrimental effect on the atmosphere of the platform. Oxygen levels dropped from the norm of 21% to 16% and the smell of decomposition from the bodies trapped in the wreckage was noticed by the workers. Those working on the platform or tunnel were restricted to 20 minute spells working, followed by 40 minutes recovery time on the surface. All workers had to wear gloves and masks, any cuts had to be reported and no one with a cut was allowed to be involved in the extrition of a body. Temperatures improved after a company donated an air conditioning unit which was installed at ground level and the air piped down into the tunnel. During the 1st and 2nd of March, the wreckage of the second carriage was cut away in, in sections and winched free. Clearance of the carriages continued around the clock until a break was forced by a telephone bomb scare at 10pm on the 2nd of March, which forced the crews to evacuate the station. The last passenger was removed from the front carriage at 3.20pm on the 4th of March, which left only the driver's body. Gordon Hafter, London Underground's Chief Engineer and Lieutenant Colonel Ian McNaughton, the Chief Inspecting Officer of Railways, examined the driver's cab. Normally 91 centimeters three feet deep it had been crushed to 15 centimeters or six inches they ascertained that Newsom was at his controls although his head had been forced through the front window Hafter reported his examination about Newsom to the subsequent inquiry quote his left hand was close to but not actually on the driver's brake handle and his right arm was hanging down to the right of the main controller his head was to the left of the dead man's handle which had been forced upwards beyond its normal travel and was resting on his right shoulder end quote Newson's body was removed at 8.05pm on the 4th of March. The fire brigade cleared the remainder of the wreckage by 5am on the 5th of March and handed control of the platform back to London Underground. The rescue and cleanup operation involved the efforts of 1,324 firemen, 240 policemen, 80 ambulance men, 16 doctors and several nurses. Service on the line had been suspended on the day of the crash. A shuttle service between Drayton Park and Old Street was used from the 1st of March 1975 until normal traffic returned on the 10th of March. Now we get into the investigation and inquiry into what happened. The post-mortem was undertaken on Newsom by the Home Office pathologist Keith Simpson on the 4th of March 1975. He found no physical condition such as a stroke or heart attack that would have explained the crash. Initial findings showed no drugs or alcohol in Newsom's bloodstream and there was no evidence of liver damage from heavy drinking. On the 7th of March 1975, Anthony Crossland, the Secretary of State for the Environment, instructed McNaughton to undertake an investigation of the crash. McNaughton's inquiry began on the 13th of March and was paused after a day and a half. During that time, it was established that the mechanics of the train were in working order and that there were no known problems with Newsom's health, although the results of pathological tests were still awaited. McNaughton said he was perplexed as to the cause of the crash, but that he would proceed with the next part of his inquiry, which was to undertake further inquiries and to consider measures so the accident would not be repeated.
The coroner's inquest was held between the 14th and 18th of April 1975. David Paul, the coroner, was unhappy that a government inquiry had already begun, as evidence was in the public domain and could affect the inquest jury. 61 witnesses gave evidence. An analysis of Newson's kidneys by the toxicologist Dr. Ann Robinson showed his blood alcohol level at the time of the post-mortem was 80 mg slash 100 ml. Robinson stated that there were several biological processes that produced alcohol in the body after death, and it was not possible to reach a definitive conclusion as to whether this was the result of consumption of alcohol or a product of the process of decomposition. She added, quote, There are so many unknown factors here that it is difficult to be precise and definite. One has to make a number of assumptions, end quote. Although she stated that it was likely that he had been drinking, 80mg slash 100ml was, and as at 2022, still is, the legal limit in England for driving. It was the highest reading of four samples taken from Newson's body, the lowest was 20mg slash 100ml. Newson's widow stated that her husband drank spirits only rarely. David Paul agreed that it was out of character with all he had heard, and agreed that further tests could be run on Newson's samples. On the final day of the inquiry, Dr. Roy Goulding, a specialist in the forensic examination of poisons, stated that while he reached the same results of 80mg slash 100ml, his conclusions differed from Robinson's. Goulding stated that as alcohol was naturally produced in the blood after death, it was not possible to confirm that Newson had been drinking prior to the crash. Several of Newson's colleagues reported that they had no suspicions that Newson had been drinking and that his behavior on the morning of the crash was normal. David Paul asked Simpson to comment on the findings relating to alcohol levels. He informed the coroner that, quote, it is generally accepted that as much as 80mg slash 100ml may make its appearance in a decomposition body after four days in a relatively high temperature, end quote. The jury returned verdicts of accidental death. On the 19th of March, a memorial service was held at St. Paul's Cathedral, London, attended by 2,000 mourners, including representatives of the emergency services and Newson's widow and family. McNaughton publishes report almost a year later on the 4th of March 1976. He wrote that tests showed no equipment fault on the train and that the dead man's handle had no defect. From x-rays, it was clear that at the moment of the crash, Newson's head was on the dead man's handle. There were no electrical burns on his skin or clothing to indicate an electrical fault. McNaughton observed that because of Harris's lack of experience, he could not have taken any action to stop the accident from happening, although he thought the young man displayed himself as idle and undisciplined. He concluded that the accident was solely due to a lapse on the part of the driver, motorman Newson. Given the inquest findings relating to alcohol in Newson's bloodstream, McNaughton examined the possibility that Newson was drunk. He received expert advice that even if Newson had drunk significant alcohol to achieve a blood alcohol level of 80mg slash 100ml, it would not account for the crash. McNaughton also examined the possibility of suicide by Newson, but considered it unlikely given other indications, including Newson's plans for purchasing a car later in the day, and that he had driven the route without error for the preceding two and a half hours. During the inquest, Harris testified that Newson had also overshot a platform three or four days before the accident had occurred, and a passenger had also reported a second overshoot by Newson that week. The suicide expert, Bruce Danto, stated of the overshoots, quote, That does not sound like a misjudgment to me. That sounds like a man who is getting the feeling of how to run a train into a wall, end quote. 
McNaughton investigated the possibility that Newson may have been daydreaming or distracted to the point that he did not realise the train was entering Moorgate. McNaughton concluded that as the train went over the scissor crossing before the platform, it would have been brought to the driver to his senses. It was also likely that Newson would have realised his circumstances before the train hit the wall and would have thrown his hands up in front of his face in a reflex action. Medical evidence presented to the inquiry raised the possibility that the driver had been affected by conditions such as transient global amnesia or Arkansas with mutism. Where the brain continues to function and the individual remains aware, although not being able to move physically. There was no evidence to indicate either condition to positively diagnose Arkansas with mutism would depend on a microscopic examination of the brain, which was not possible because of decomposition and transient global amnesia leaves no traces. McNaughton's report found that there was insufficient evidence to say if the accident was due to a deliberate act or a medical condition. Quote, I must conclude, therefore, that the cause of this accident lay entirely in the behaviour of Motorman Newson during the final minute before the accident occurred, whether his behaviour was deliberate or whether it was a result of a suddenly arising physical condition not revealed as a result of post-mortem examination. There is not sufficient evidence to examine, but I am satisfied that no part of the responsibility for the accident rests with any other person and that there was no fault or condition of the train, track or signalling that in any way contributed to it. End quote. Now we come into the legacy of this case. London Underground services into Moorgate on the Northern City Line had previously been scheduled to be replaced by British Rail services from Wellington Garden City and Hertford. The accident did not change the plan. The last London Underground services on the Northern City Line ran into Moorgate on the 4th of October 1975 and British Rail services started in August 1976, having previously terminated at Broad Street Station. When Platform 9 reopened, there had been changes introduced to aid drivers. The back wall of the tunnel was painted white and a large heavy-duty buffer preceded the sand drag. Shortly after the crash, London Underground imposed a speed limit of 10 miles per hour, 16 kilometers per hour, for all trains entering terminal platforms. Operating instructions were changed so that the protecting signal at terminal platforms was held at danger until trains approaching were travelling slowly or had been brought to a stop, although this caused delays and operating problems. Now we get into the Moorgate protection. Since the death of a driver in 1971 when an empty stock train crashed into buffers in a tunnel siding near Tooting Broadway, London Underground had been introducing speed controls at such locations. By the time of the Moorgate crash, 12 of the 19 locations had the equipment installed. In July of 1978, approval was given for the Moorgate Protection, Moorgate Control or Trains Entering Terminal Station TTS to be introduced at all dead-end terminal on manually driven trains on the Underground system. At Moorgate's Platform 9, three timed train stops were installed, the first at the scissors crossing, the second at the start of the platform, and the third halfway down the platform. If the train passes any of these at more than 12.5 miles per hour, 20.1 kilometers an hour, the emergency brake is applied. Resistors were placed in the traction supply of trains to prevent a train accelerating when entering the platform, although the value of these resistors had to be changed after installation. Relays switched the resistors out when the train is permitted to leave. The system was operational in all locations by 1984. The accident, accident also led to changes in signalling. Previously, it had always been standard policy for the last signal indication before a buffer stop or bay platform to indicate clear green light to the train driver and caution single yellow light if the platform was partially occupied. Following the Moorgate accident, signalling was changed to give an approach controlled delayed yellow aspect when the line was clear to the buffer stops and red plus a subsidiary aspect, two white lights at 45 degrees, when the line or platform was partially occupied. 
Now we get into the memorials of this case. In the southwest corner of Finsbury Square, 410 metres or 450 yards north of Moorgate Station, a memorial lists those who died. Measuring 1.2 by 0.9 metres or 4 foot times 3 feet, it was unveiled in July 2013 after a long campaign by relatives of the victims and supporters. On the 28th of February 2014, a memorial plaque was unveiled by Fiona Wolfe, the Lord Mayor of London, on the side of the station building in Moor Place. Now we get into the media. In 1977, the BBC One programme Red Alert examined whether an accident like Moorgate could happen again. The writer Lawrence Marks, whose father died in the disaster, presented Me, My Dad and Moorgate, a Channel 4 documentary broadcast on the 4th of June 2006. He stated that he believed the crash was due to suicide by Newson. In 2009, the BBC Radio 4 programme In Living Memory examined the cause of the crash, and in 2015, Real Lives Reunited aired on BBC One, recorded survivors meeting the firemen who cut them from the wreckage. To this day, the reason behind the crash and exactly what happened remains unexplained, and to this day we still don't know exactly what Newsom was up to and why the crash was caused in the first place. To this day, it all remains unknown and we may never really know what happened. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions. Mary A. Anderson is the pseudonym that was used by an unknown woman who committed suicide in a Seattle, Washington hotel room in October of 1996. 